Hello, and welcome back to the Product Launch Podcast. My name is Sean Boyce. I'm the founder of Next Step Product Management Consultancy. And today on the show, we have my friend Jake joining us from Pareto PPC. Hello, Jake, and thanks for joining us. Hello. Happy Monday. Nice to see you again. How are things? Everything is well. Thanks again for being here. I'm looking forward to diving in and learning more about your expertise. I was going to say for both myself and our listeners, if you could please uh, give, introduce yourself a little bit, give us a little more background about you, and then also how Pareto PPC came to be and what it's all about. Great. Thanks. So just to give you guys a quick introduction, uh, as you said, uh, my name is Jake. I've been a local Philly guy for about 15 years and counting. And earlier this year, I started a boutique marketing agency called Pareto PPC. Um, this agency came about based off of a need from a lot of my prior clients who wanted amazing process and marketing development. Uh, me and an old colleague met at an agency about 15, uh, no, sorry, five years ago to date. And we were managing marketing budgets of over 10 to 15 million annually. So it was mainly enterprise level clients. Um, as most of the audience could probably guess, these agencies, which dealt with such high volumes of clients, it was very hit or miss from one team to another. There was no quality control in the services. And that led us to kind of leaving the agency, but coming back three years later, circling up and giving this business a go. Um, once that you know was kind of hit the ground running, it feels really good to start a company based off of, you know, customers that really want strong services and really see the value that you're providing from a service-based and development-based perspective, not just top line. And we've had previous conversations about this a bunch, and I'd love to get your take from your background, but specifically about, you know, when building a product business or when considering marketing products in particular, kind of more in your area of expertise, talk to us a little bit about kind of getting the right data Another thing I'm a big proponent of is pursuing the data-driven decision-making as much as possible. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about you talking about those concepts and you know, how important those can be and how you should incorporate those in your process. Absolutely. Yeah, being data-driven is an absolute keystone today. Um, it's one of the new buzzwords, I feel like, that's been going around. Um, the main reason why I think it's so important, especially in product and software-based businesses, is because of the feedback loop that you need in order to kind of steer the ship or the company in the correct direction. Um, the terms I use are lead and lag KPIs um, in a day-driven business. So a lead KPI is anything you would get kind of ahead of time and a lag KPI is all after the fact. Um, without them, you're pretty much, like you said, flying blind and you just have no clue where those uh, you know, potholes will come down the road. Um, before the internet boom, if we're gonna take a step back and reflect on the prior times, I feel like all businesses were data-driven. It's just that buzzword and the SQL databases of the time just didn't exist. Um, let's take a restaurant from the 1920s New York. You know, just let's call it as it is. They still documented how much you know, pork chops they sold one night or veal pork chops and things like that. And they still were able to understand you know, if spaghetti was selling over linguine. Like, those were still things they kept an eye on, but they just didn't have maybe a SQL server or... Um, some sort of access data point to really you know, calculate it properly. But the intent was still there. And now that technology is catching up with what we need, I feel like data-driven is now at the forefront more than ever just because of the ease of it and the level of depth you're able to get on your business. For sure. And getting back into that kind of buzzword-worthy conversation, I couldn't agree more. Popping up all the time, and I one I've heard a bit more frequently nowadays, and I'm sure you've heard the same, is in the product-led growth arena, PLG. That's bouncing around a lot as well, too. 
I talked a little bit about that and some of the content I've done previously. I'm sure I'm sure you're well aware also. Oh, yes, I am there. They go hand in hand nowadays. So now that we know kind of a better understand the importance of being data driven, right? And then, like you said, plenty of businesses have followed this process very successfully. I can think of countless examples. I remember reading about Sam Walton and the Walmart story and how he would go into different types of uh, retail stores. It, you know, in his time as he was growing his business, he would go in there and he would ask them all kinds of questions about how they did things, what sold, why they put stuff in certain areas. And likewise, like you said, even way back, you know, making data-driven decisions. You know, but for today, for today's companies, can you talk to them a little bit about how they know whether or not they have the right data, right? Just being data-driven, data, being data-driven is a good, right, a good first step, right? But, but how do you know if you have the right data? Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Um, if we were in the statistics world, that would be statistical type two error. But for today, it's a really hard and really loaded question to ask. Um, the reason why is because you don't really know if you have the right data you're tracking, but the question you can answer is, are you tracking the data in your current software correctly? And are you gonna make business decisions off of it? Um, it's a little bit of a backwards way of looking at it, but you just have to make sure that you put your best step forward in the strategic tracking of the information that you want to look at. The reason why is because you don't want to track everything because as nice as it sounds that you can track, you know, the hover of a mouse over, you know, a certain element on the web page, or let's say you track a certain user flow within this software uh, system that you've built and you're watching the path of which they're taking through all that could be good, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, really what you want to do is collect the data that answers the business questions that you can make decisions off of and then make really good strategic decisions for your product roadmap and make really strong decisions to continue to perform, uh, like kind of adjust the performance of the software, or the product, the usability, the communication, all that stuff. Because if you're just tracking to track, you're just going to get derailed and lost in the analytics. And that's a rabbit hole. I don't think anyone wants to go down. That's a really good point. And I, I want to further drive that home. What do you mention there specifically for the listeners? Because I experience this all the time as well, too. I'll come into product engagements and I'll get a better understanding in the data that they're capturing. And it, oftentimes it is a significant amount of data. They're measuring all kinds of, of metrics. But then I'll start to ask a little bit more. I'll peel back those layers and be like, why are you measuring this? Or what are you doing with this information? And then sometimes I quickly get to a dead end. They're like, we don't really know why we're capturing that data or what we're doing with it. And that really starts to tell a different story as far as how all this came to be, like just staying busy to stay busy. I'm sure you see plenty of that too. Oh yeah, yeah, no, in a lot of the bigger enterprise companies, sometimes work is there just to save headcount. And I get it, you know, it, it, it is what it is, but at the same time, you have to make sure that the product roadmap is constantly improving and bettering because competition out there isn't getting any easier. You know, the competitive market is growing, more and more application, more and more software programs, more and more API endpoints, more and more things are, you know, existing as we even continue this podcast. So, you know, stagnation in the roadmap is really not a place for anyone. All right. So on to the next topic, which is a question I get frequently, and it is a challenging one to answer, but it's one that everyone that's building a product business wants to know more about. So anyone in and around that world... I just love to get kind of get their impression on it. And that's the concept of product market fit. It means different things to different people. 
based on your background, your experience, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think that's kind of like the first question that anyone should kind of look into before they really make the dive both in terms of time and finances into a product. So, you know, when someone's first starting out and they say, I want to launch a product into this specific market that they have, doing a specific study, doing value prop positioning, which is, you know, defining why your product is competitively better than, you know, the competition around you. Doing a lot of market research, cost forecasting, financial modeling. You know, the big thing, as you can probably even talk to in product, is the revenue model of subscription-based versus annuals versus tiering. You know, all those different new age ways of generating cash is, you know, obviously different value props. But in general, the strategy part of it is just so important, which I think a lot of people do miss. And they just go right to, I want to build something cool. And just because it's cool doesn't mean it's actually going to make a dent in the market. I couldn't agree more. You're obviously getting arguments from me here about investing in strategy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, actually, I, I'll give you a good quote. Whenever I go on conference tours, I, I use one quote from Abe Lincoln. Uh, he said, you know, if you're going to chop down a tree and you're going to give him six hours, he's going to sharpen his ax for four. So that goes to show, you know, you got to get the right prep in place before execution. Um, one thing I will comment as is even when you take a look at, you know, product development, things like that, you don't need to, I think too many people today try and find the perfect niche. I don't know if you happen to go on YouTube and find these advertisements of these entrepreneurs saying, I'm going to find the best product and the best vertical, and we're going to go in there and spend a bunch of marketing and make 80% margin. That perfect niche or that perfect nexus of like very, very low competition and very, very high customer spending, that's a unicorn that's just really hard to find sometimes out there. So what I try and tell people all the time is when you're building a product, make sure it has really good user experience and really good um, just UX built into it. Because if you don't want to use it and they don't want to use it, it's not going to happen. And the hardware and the technology just needs to be up to par. You know, marketing is vastly important in this as well as a kick-ass marketing campaign will make you know, the word of mouth go out there and it will really help stir up the, um, really the awareness and brand awareness that's required nowadays. The importance of customer experience, so really CX, user experience in your uh, UX, in your application, these things are so important to generate that kind of virality around using your product and then that word of mouth spreading as you're referring to it. Uh, you have a lot more experience in marketing than I do, but I, everything that I've read and learned from a professional such as yourself is this importance of, you know, ensuring that you're going about doing things the right way, you know, whether it's organic content creation, but you're writing about the right things, or like you said, investing in CX or UX, it all needs to work together in order to kind of create the, the best, most comprehensive experience for the customer. Absolutely. I mean, I'll be candid with you. If word of mouth for every product worked, then you wouldn't need me. So it comes down to the point of, you know, buying someone's ability to want to use your product can be expensive sometimes. So just building the best product you can and getting them to do the marketing for you is normally your most valuable asset. Yep. Absolutely agreed. And a big part I think that you've articulated as well too is some one of the challenges, especially of the product companies that I work with is kind of getting over that hump though is, you know, from the beginning, it'd be very difficult to know 
who is my ideal target market customer. So that's where your expertise is going to pay dividends and helping them narrow that, that timeline for how long it's going to help it take for them to ultimately figure that out. And then like we talked about earlier, making sure you're getting the right data to ensure that you are continuing to, to give yourself the best advantages possible to ultimately quickly get to the ability where your CX, your UX is solid around your product. And then you can start to benefit from the organic component. But in the beginning, it's just, it's, it's insurmountable, the challenge that a lot of these product companies face and could have a great product, but unless they know exactly how to market it, how to get it in front of the right audience and who that audience even is, uh, they're going to, they're going to spin their wheels, right? Absolutely. And not only that, it's the timing of it too. Um, you know, we're currently running into kind of a tough time for marketing. Um, it's every four years, as we know, in the United States, the presidential election comes up and billions of dollars flood the market. So it does increase CPCs artificially. Um, it's one of those things that most marketers know that Facebook will go up 15% just cause, um, that is a bummer, but that is the cadence that is our, you know, our demographic. So it's just one thing I always tell my, you know, book of business come every four years is be prepared. That's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but it does make a lot of sense that they would, you know, in that interim period when so much, so many dollars are flooding into marketing. Yeah, it's, it's a re, it's reverse auction. So it's not rocket science. It's just as more money hits the market, it, everything gets naturally expensive when you're trying to hit the same demographics, the same thing. I mean, with Facebook, you can get as targeted as if someone's single or married, or if they have interests in certain, you know, you know, sports teams, or if they like pizza or not, or what age group they are, what level of education or household income. I mean, it gets very, very granular and scary, but the more specific you get, the more expensive it gets. And if your target audience for a product is similar to that of what someone else is trying to target, and they have a lot more money and they spend it at a very odd cadence, it will affect your current costs. So. Absolutely. Good point. So you heard that, uh, your folks reach out to Jake before this election cycle swings through and, and your yeah. go up, right? <laughs> yeah. And not only that, I, you know, would love Facebook to be able to prepay for some of this ahead of time to get ahead of it, but I don't yeah, think they are come to be. I was going to say, maybe not anytime soon, but I like the idea. No, no, never. Got it. And you brought up another good point there as well too. And it was kind of niching down, right? Being more specific not just in who you can target and there's a lot of great tools out there. You know a lot more about that than I do. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that process, but do you help people do that as well too? And if so, what's your take on it with, you know, figuring out how to be more niche? Um, I've, I found that to be an advantage in that almost like if I get smaller, it helps me speed up. Uh, it helps me move faster. And I've seen the same pattern play out as well also, but I think there's a misconception out there that thinks like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, eliminate anybody who may be uh, potentially a customer. I think the reality is just that, you know, they think they're swimming in a swimming pool in reality, they're trying to swim through across the ocean. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's not a recipe for something that will probably scale. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that too. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, the more general you are, the weaker the value propositions are. Um, as you pretty much start to work on your product roadmap and you start defining what your value propositions are, how you're going to kind of compete against the relative software applications or product environments out there. You need to have these such high value props and in order to generate them, you need to be niched and specialized and so unique and, you know, solving one or two problems very, very well 
is much better than solving a whole breadth of problems, you know, not as good. Um, I think the best way to kind of sum it up, and Sean, I think you probably will agree with me here very well, is your product is only as good as the worst service offering you have. So if you decide to offer, let's say, five or six lines of business in the service offering, and let's rate, grade them all equally at a three out of five, but you decided to also build a separate instance where you only offer two of the five and they're both five out of five, that latter one will do exponentially better just because the quality of service and the perceived value is just so much higher. And people will remember you for what you do the worst, if that makes sense. That's a good point. It's a good way to think about it though. And I, I know we have a tendency to focus on just what, you know, where we've had our successes, but there's the inverse of that, of course, as well. Also, I mean, there's that range, right? And that will be your perception. That will be kind of your fingerprint out there. So it's important to, to make sure you have eyes on the full spectrum. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Awesome. Uh, the content has been fantastic. Uh, I'm excited to share with the listeners. Another question we have and we ask regularly is we're typically sharing resources as well also. So could you talk a little about anything you might share with us and our audience in the form of someone who's building a product business or involved in a product business in some way, you know, books, blogs, any kind of resources that you would recommend? Yeah, of course. Um, so in terms of, you know, my favorite products, um, I work a lot in the Google suite. Um, I know a lot of people out there are probably writing their own custom code base. Maybe it's, you know, you stood up in Azure. Maybe it's, you know, a wireframe off of something else. Maybe it's Xcode. Maybe it's as cool as Cold Fusion, which I don't think anyone's working on nowadays. Maybe it's an awesome Salesforce application, whatever it might be. Um, I'm very much a Google person through and through. So a lot of the stuff that I do, you know, it's all about writing really good Google Apps scripts, making sure I automate all of my data pipelines. So I watch a lot of YouTube videos on this. I go through a lot of podcasts, uh, digital analytics podcasts, the digital analytics power hour. Um, there's a lot of just little things I do that are kind of dorky, but outside of that, a lot of, I really spend most of my time on the Slack groups. So a lot of the Slack groups that I'm part of are, you know, measure, which is a great resource for people who are doing event tracking, data science, um, marketing. There's the Python groups like Python community. Um, and then there's the data science community on there. So that's kind of where I, you know, live for most of my feedback from users like me. The Slack groups is a great plug. That's one that I think is easy to forget that people may or may not know about. But I feel like just like there are, you know, in Reddit, I'm sure you're familiar with Reddit and all the various subreddits that are out there, there's got to be at least as many Slack groups. There might be more. And I'm thinking not even just Slack groups, LinkedIn groups and stuff like that. But there's great, I've seen great interaction in those Slack groups. That's a good one to mention for sure. Yeah, I think that Reddit gets a lot of views. I use Reddit for some of my lead generation. I use it for bouncing ideas off for marketing or data analytics. But in terms of Slack, I think people are more vested once they join a Slack group versus just following a subreddit because it gets combined with their personal ones, not necessarily the business requirements of why they did it. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure there's, there, I would, it would be interesting to see what the interaction looks like, but I think I agree with you that there would be more interaction in a Slack group. And that's what, I think that's what a lot of people are after that are, that are trying to gain access to the community like that. The other thing that you mentioned was the Google suite of tools. I live in the Google suite of tools. It's almost like I'm waiting for them to come out with something else that I can use to increase my productivity. Glad you mentioned that one because 
there's so much available, especially if you opt for the business version of what they offer. I mean, for, you know, whatever it is, five bucks a month or something like that, you gain access to so many resources and productivity tools that you can use to, to build and grow your business. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I use a lot of the suite and I automate a lot of the suite. Um, I don't think many people out there know, but there is something called app scripts that Google launched that allows the different, I want to call it service offerings, but like Gmail, Google Sheets, Google Slide, Google Form, all of those things interact with each other. Um, they created their own code base called uh, Google Script, which is just GS. Honestly, it's just JavaScript, but just relabeled with Google's name on it in a different font, so it looks cute. But what it's able to do is really, really automate a lot of the day-to-day -day tasks and a lot of the manual work that can get done. So let's say you decide to let's say you build a Salesforce app, right? And you want to post a lot of the information into a Google form. You could create the Google form, post it into Salesforce, but at the same time, send yourself an email, allow an alert to read, post it into Google Sheets, and then have Chimpmail, which is your you know, email provider, scrape that list, put it in, and then you could start sending welcome campaigns within seconds. So instead of building custom Python event scripts or custom job scripts that run in Azure that are constantly loading and looking for these new batch files, you could do it in Google pretty quickly, as long as it doesn't take three to five minutes to load, which is you know a little bit of a hindrance, but it still is very powerful. That's a great point. And another thing that I'm a huge advocate for, especially in those that are looking to build product businesses, is don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to, right? Jump through the occasional hoop, use the tools that are out there, you can connect stuff together. And I love that you mentioned the ability to kind of automate a bunch of these tasks. That can help you move so much faster, especially if you're starting from scratch. Okay. And it's free. Yeah, yeah. good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, right the one, yeah, the one thing I will add to that is the value, and I think you can talk to this, is the value of a minimal viable product. Like when you are first validating the product that you're trying to build, making sure that the target market likes it, maybe bringing it to a small user group to do some user testing in front of some people like, you don't need to have the Rolls Royce driven there. You just need a Subaru that gets you there and just further validates any financial investment or backing that you're looking for. And maybe that could be used in a round one, round two, you know, venture cap acquisition. You just need something that people are like, okay, this, this is serious and this has a use case and I see the value. And I think just getting there is the hardest part. And after that, that's when the real fun begins. Then it's when I'm sure you get brought into the conversation. Yeah, right. Agreed. No, that's an excellent point. And the, the, the MVP scenario, that is su it's such a powerful approach to take. And it's not taken advantage of as much as it should be. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and they've done a ton of custom work. I'm like, oh, man, if you would only combine these you know, few things together, which uh, oftentimes they don't end up doing anyway, and it helps them be so much more flexible, move so much faster. Like we talked about earlier, getting that right data so that they can uh, plan to scale. Exactly, and I'm sure you've seen it where companies and product companies pivot very quickly based off what their user base needs or what the market's out there. So building the full-fledged tool isn't always the best idea first. It's always in moderation. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. In fact, I put tech and building, that's at the end of my process. I, talk, I wrote about this recently too, and that's a you know, form of a blog article and some emails comparing and contrasting market and tech risk. The tech risk being 
you know, if it can be built, the market risk being, does anybody care that it is built or is anybody willing to buy it? Where the focus is often in tech risk, but where it should be because where the majority of the risk is, is in that market risk. Yeah. Great point. No, it's, it's strategy. It's all, it all goes back to it. Absolutely. So having said that, that brings a great question up as far as who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch? Yes, I like this plug. So they can reach out to me at uh, jake at paretoppc.com. They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, they can find me on my website. Um, I have great web forms that are automated, so they'll get an email right away. So super excited to hear from any of the audience here that wants to learn more about marketing or market share or how I can help them in any way. Excellent. Well said. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your insight with us, Jake. Thank you. No, looking forward to chatting again. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Launch Podcast powered by Next Step. If you're looking for help with your product business in the area of product strategy or product management, please feel free to reach out to Next Step to learn more about how we can help at hello at nextstep.io. That's hello at nxtstep.io. Additionally, if you know anyone who has experience building, running, or managing a product or product business and would like to be a guest on our show to share their story, please have them reach out to our organizer at podcast at nextstep.io. That's podcast at nxtstep.io. Thanks and keep disrupting. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.